Psalm 87, real short little psalm. A psalm of the sons of Korah, a song. His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God, Selah. I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon to those who know me. Behold, O Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia, this one was born there. And of Zion, it will be said, this one and that one were born in her. And the Most High himself shall establish her. The Lord will record when he registers the peoples. This one was born there, Selah. Both the singers and the players on instruments say, All my springs are in you. And today's sermon is uh, Exodus 19, verses 10 through 15. This is entitled, A Law of Death and Condemnation. So Exodus 19, starting verse 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes. And let them be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. In sm its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. But Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for he warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, Away, get down, and then come up you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. I know that's a lot of verses for a sermon. A few months ago, uh, a friend asked me to watch the series. I don't know if any of you have seen this on the History Channel, Ancient Aliens, but uh, he wanted to know specifically about the things which don't seem to match the biblical account. And uh, I watched all of them that were available on Netflix at the time, and I gave him a few short reports as we went through it, but I have not been able to get the time together to completely go over them. The thing about that show, or any like it, is that when you have a presupposition about something, it will immediately affect your perspective on everything which you view in the world which you live. In other words, our world view will naturally lead us to make conclusions whether they are sound or not. For the ancient alien theorists, as they call themselves, everything they see is biased based on a world view that ancient man was less 
not more developed and that he could only accomplish the great feats of the past by external help. As far as ancient religions, they want to see aliens everywhere, and so they do. Today's passage was one that they spoke of. They believe the aliens, not the Lord, descended on Mount Sinai. As with each time they quoted the Bible, though, in their series, their analyses of it were flawed, and they would insert things which are not recorded in the Bible. If they did this with the most studied and plainly available text on the entire planet, the Holy Bible, then they certainly did it with all the other ancient texts, texts excuse me, <clears throat> which they which very few people have ever looked at and which lack a large body of textual support. Be advised today, though, aliens did not descend on Mount Sinai. The account is plain, it's clear, and it is tied directly into the work of Jesus Christ, as is every account which is found in Scripture. Our text verse for today comes from Romans 12, it's the third verse. For I say to you, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Paul asks us to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. That idea will come into play later in our sermon, but it also comes into play when we evaluate the Bible itself. We should not think of ourselves as knowing more than God. Rather, let us take his word at face value and respect it for what it is. Israel did not have a close encounter of the third kind. Rather, they had a close encounter of the wondrous kind when they stood before the Lord of creation and received his law. Today, we will see the beginning of that marvelous event. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is be ready for the third day. It's verses 10 through 13. Verse 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. In order to be an acceptable group of people holy to the Lord, Moses is now given instructions concerning the people. He is told to consecrate them. This means to sanctify them or to purify them. What is coming in the manifestation of the Lord upon the mountain required this above all else. This consecration is actually a twofold process. The more important of the two, the inward purity, was to be prompted on by the external acts of purification. The external cleansing for the people is given to those who conduct the rites and they would understand that these externals necessitated internal cleansing in order to be meaningful. During the time they purified themselves externally, they should be working on the internal purification through prayer, through contemplation of who they were in relation to the Lord, and putting away the thoughts of self. Instead, they should regard what was coming as sacred and holy. All this was to be spurred on by the external rites. In calling on Christ, we are immediately sanctified by the sealing of the Holy Spirit. However, in our natural lives, we are still not pure. In this life, as we conduct the external rituals, for example, giving up on wrongdoing and replacing it with that which is proper, we are inwardly renewed and purified. The external should lead naturally to the internal. However, this is not always the case. Nothing external even if commanded, can secure inward purity. Someone who is simply giving up on being an alcoholic may replace that vice with something else. The idea for growing to be Christ-like is to replace that which is unholy with that which is holy. 
The sanctification of the people for various reasons will continue to be seen during the time of the law. In both Joshua 3 and Joshua 7, the people were instructed to sanctify themselves in preparation for certain events. In Joshua chapter 7, when a man committed a major transgression against the Lord, all of the people were to sanctify themselves in preparation for meeting with him for a time of inspection. Here's what it says. Get up, sanctify the people, and say, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow, because thus says the Lord God of Israel, there is an accursed thing in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought according to your tribes. And it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes shall come according to families. And the family which the Lord takes shall come by households. And the household, household from which the Lord takes shall come man by man. Then it shall be that he who is taken with the accursed thing shall be burned with fire and all that he has because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. Of the external rites which they conducted, the washing of their clothes is explicitly mentioned and it is so first. Verse 10 continues, and let them wash their clothes. The first ordinance is pronounced here. It is the right of washing their clothes. In these words is the second use of the word kabas or wash in the Bible but it is the first time that it's used in the sense of sanctification. In total, it's going to be used 51 times, and almost always it is used for consecration or sanctification of the people. In the law itself, there will be numerous references to washing of clothes for purification. The word comes from a primitive root word, which means to trample, hence to wash specifically by stamping it with the feet. The washing then is either literal, which included the fuller process, or figurative, such as found in Psalm 51, which says this, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. As alluded to already, and as David shows in the psalm, it isn't that the Lord regards the clothes of a man, but the inward change of the heart. However, this preparation mandated to the people by the Lord is right. If a person washes their clothes, their hearts may still be filled with wickedness. However, with the washing, there would be time to think what they were doing and why they were doing this and how there should be an internal cleansing that goes along with it. Benson wisely notes that it becomes us to appear in clean clothes when we wait upon great men, so clean hearts are required in our attendance on the great God. Even prior to this time of the law, the washing of clothes was already seen in the Bible. In Genesis 35, Jacob instructed his household as follows. It said there in Genesis 35, verse 2, And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves, and change your garments. However, if you followed the details of Jacob's life in that particular sermon, you would know that his words to them pictured not just external cleansing, but the internal as well. In the end, it was given as a picture of the dispensational model of history and the final cleansing of God's people. And so ultimately, these washings that we're seeing in the Old Testament picture the work of Jesus Christ. One example of this is recorded in the book of Hebrews, where it says this, let us draw near with the true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
The book of Revelation gives three explicit examples of this for us to consider. Remember that the external garments are only given as emblems of the internal conversion of a person to Christ. Here's what it says first in Revelation 3, 4, and 5. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. The white garments in which the redeemed are clothed may be real garments, but they symbolize the sinless nature because of the work of Jesus Christ. On the last page of the Bible, we read this, Revelation twenty-two fourteen: Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. This is inclusive of all of the redeemed throughout the ages and throughout all of history. But before that time comes, there are those who, after the church age, after the rapture of the church, will have to go through the tribulation period in order to be purified. This is seen in our final verse to consider on such purification, which is first being pictured here today at the foot of Mount Sinai. Revelation 7. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. In the end, the Geneva Bible sums up this concept rather well and quite succinctly with these words. Teach them to be pure in heart as they show themselves outwardly clean by washing. Verse 11, and let them be ready for the third day. This requirement of being ready for the third day is to mark the extremely sacred nature of what was to occur. If it was just a matter of washing one's clothes, they could appear the following day, couldn't they? Two days of cleansing showed it was far more than just an external rite. Concerning this third day, it now becomes important to understand what was relayed in the last sermon concerning verse 1 in this chapter. At that time, I explained in detail that the first day of the third month was the 47th day since their departure. Understanding that, Moses came back down from the mountain and spoke to the people the words reviewed during the first nine verses of this chapter. What is not explicitly stated, but which is to be inferred, is that it is now the 48th day of the account. The reason for this is that Moses had to go back down the mountain and get an answer from the people and then go back up the mountain the next day. This is assured because of the words of verse 10, which said, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. If all of the events of verses 1 through 9 included the same day as this, there would be no time to consecrate the people for that day. Therefore, verse 10 begins the 48th day after the exodus. The importance of this is found in the next words of verse 11. Going on, For on the third day the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. In the Bible, the Lord is noted as dwelling in heaven. This is seen, for example, in Psalm 123. It says there, Unto you I lift up my eyes, O you who dwell in the heavens. However, he is seen to not exclusively dwell there, but especially there. It is his abode. Because of this, when he appears on the earth, he is said to come down. This is seen not just here, but numerous times in Scripture. If this is the 48th day and the Lord will come down on the third day, then that means he will come down on the 50th day. They are to consecrate themselves on the 48th day and on the 49th day. 
Thus the Lord will appear to them on the 50th day, which corresponds with the fourth day of the Hebrew month Sivan. The reason why this is important is twofold. First, it looks forward to the Feast of Weeks, or Shavuot, which is found in Leviticus chapter 23. In the instructions for that feast, we read this, And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. There is a period of 50 days which is counted off from the Feast of First Fruits until a particular event occurs, which is the Feast of Shavuot. In Greek, it is known as Pentecost. This leads to the second reason for the detail. It corresponds to the giving of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, which is found in Acts chapter 2, where it says this, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. In type, then, the giving of the law prefigures the giving of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost because of the 50 recorded days in each. As there was no feast of first fruits at the time of the Exodus, the feast is counted from the first day after the Passover rather than the set day in Leviticus 23. However, both events are preceded by a 50-day period of learning from the Lord and anticipating a meeting with him. In the end, unless a number of days are not recorded at this camp, which is unlikely, before the receiving of the law, the time here only matches the period leading up to the events. But the giving of the law and the giving of the Holy Spirit did not occur on the same calendar day of the month. It is possible, but not explicitly stated. It should be noted that the term Sinai is used here instead of Horeb. This is the same place that the elders were brought to back in chapter 17, but then it was called Horeb. Why has the Lord changed the name to Sinai? It is because of what it pictures. Sinai means bush of the Lord, particularly a thorny bush. Verse 12, you shall set bounds for the people all around saying, take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Explicit instructions are given here concerning the setting of bounds using a new word introduced into the Bible. It is gabal. It is a verb which is used just five times, and two of them are in this chapter. It is the verb form of the more common noun gebul. Both come from a root which means to twist as a rope. Thus it indicates to bind or to make a border. This is the idea given here. Whether the border was to be a trench that's dug around the mountain or if it was a rope to be braided for the purpose, it was necessary because the mountain at points rises directly up out of the earth. Therefore, a person or an animal could simply walk up to it and touch it. Such specific limits then were to be set and adhered to or the most serious of consequences would result. Verse 12 continues, whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. The consequences for merely touching the mountain are set. The person who does so is to be executed. The Hebrew uses the term mot yumat, dying he shall die. However, it wouldn't be possible to seize that person without also transgressing the command. And so provisions for his execution were given in advance so that this wouldn't occur. 
Ellicott notes that unless it had been forbidden, there might have seemed to be no reason why pious Israelites might not have ascended the height to draw near to God in prayer. It is a praiseworthy feeling which breathes in the words, Nearer my God to thee, but the nation was not fit for this close approach. In contemplating the strictness of coming near to God during this dispensation of time, we should feel truly, truly blessed that we have, under the dispensation of grace, meaning the church age, the honor of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit and the joy of being allowed to come to the very throne of God in prayer. This is recorded in Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Unlike us today, though, for one who tried to get nearer my God to thee under the Old Testament, there was a penalty. Verse 13, not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. The King James Version completely botched this verse. They said, there shall not a hand touch it. This is not speaking of the mountain, but of the person who has touched the mountain who is being referred to in the previous verse. It is to signify that the sin of touching the mountain by that person would then transfer to the person who touched him. Instead of this, that person was to be stoned or shot. Thus it implied that a distance was to be kept between the offender and the executioners. This is now the third time that stoning is mentioned in the Bible, but it is the first time that it is given as a penalty from the Lord for a transgression of his law. The Hebrew says, Sakol Yisakel, stoning, you shall stone him. Or if someone had an arrow handy, they were to shoot him with that. The word for shot in this verse is yara. It specifically means to teach, because in shooting something or in throwing something, a demonstration is made. Thus, one learns by example. In this case, the person would learn their lesson by being on the receiving end of an arrow. Verse 13 continues, Whether man or beast, he shall not live. Adding in that a beast was to be killed may sound unnecessary or even vindictive, but this is not the case. The holiness of God is something that is referred to throughout all of Scripture. The fallen nature of creation is also mentioned explicitly by Paul in Romans chapter 8. Even animals with no sense of reason were to be killed if they violated this precept. Secondly, if an animal were to be allowed to live after touching the mountain of the Lord, it could then itself be turned into an idol by the people who saw it. In essence, holy cow. This is a holy cow because it was sanctified by the Lord atop the holy mountain. And if you don't believe this is possible, take a peek at the millions and millions of relics or beasts which are adored and worshipped by countless false religions. And I want to give you an example that I thought of this morning. When I lived in Malaysia, we had a highway that went from where we lived down to Port Klang, which was on the coast. It was called the Subang Highway. And while they were expanding at one time, they were coming up to a banyan tree. And it was in the way of where it needed to go. And so they got a crane and they tried to pull down this banyan tree. And instead of the banyan tree going down, the crane went down. And the Hindus, and they're 6% of the society in Malaysia, went crazy. And they surrounded the tree and they bowed down to it. And they said, you're not allowed to cut down this tree. It's a holy tree. On and on and on, worshiping the created rather than the creator. So don't think that this is improbable. Holy cow, we have an idol here. Verse 13 continues, when the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. This is the first mention of the yobel or trumpet in the Bible. 
It specifically refers to a ram's horn, but it also means jubilee. It is used 27 times from Exodus through Joshua. There is no reason to assume that this is not a literal trumpet, as so many scholars do. Throughout the Bible and even into the New Testament, trumpets are recorded both from an earthly and a heavenly perspective. And so it came to my mind that this is either a very large ram that was bred on some uh, planet somewhere else, or they have a microphone that is uh, the trumpet is being played into. But either way, the whole earth shook when this thing blew. But I do believe that it is a literal trumpet. The Hebrew word indicates that. When this trumpet sounds, it says that they shall come near to the mountain, using the same words as verse 12, which forbids the people from coming near the mountain. Why? The answer to this is that they, or hema in Hebrew, is emphatic. The they, then, is not speaking of the congregation, but it is to explain those who will be allowed to go up in verses 20 through 24, meaning Moses and Aaron. In all, verses 10 through 13 have been given to show the absolute holiness of the Lord and the penalties for violating his standards. It is an advanced picture for us of the four purposes of the giving of the law to the people of the world. First, to show us God's perfect standard. Secondly, to show us that no person could meet that standard. All are unqualified without God's grace and mercy being bestowed on them. Third, to show how utterly sinful sin is to God. And finally, fourth, to show us our need for something else. That grace, which can only come by someone fulfilling the law on our behalf. And as only God can do that, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man into the world. It is the grace which we simply cannot do without. With the law, there is death and condemnation. It is God's standard, which no one can meet. Who is there from any people group or nation who can claim that through the law sin they did defeat? Where can we go? This law stands against us. When we heard its words, death came through our door. Oh God, please send us the Messiah. Send us Jesus. And through him we shall live again. Yes, live forevermore. Only he can bring us to the holy mountain. Only he can bring us up to the very throne of God. From him alone can come the cleansing fountain so that for eternal days in your light, we can trod. Our second thought today is meeting with God, verses 14 through 17. Verse 14, so Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. In obedience to the word of the Lord, Moses descends and sanctifies the people. They are being prepared for the meeting, which was originally promised all the way back in Exodus 3, verse 12, where Moses was told that when they had brought the people out, they would serve him on this mountain. That time has now come, and the necessary preparations are being made. Verse 15, and he said to the people, be ready for the third day. This explanation is certainly given for the consecration of the people, but it is also for the construction of whatever type of barrier would be made to keep the people from the mountain. Whether by ditch, mound, rope, or something else, the people needed to be ready for the third day, just as directed by the Lord through Moses. Verse 15 going on, do not come near your wives. This prohibition is given for at least one and possibly for two reasons. The first was to avoid ritual uncleanliness. Though the law had not yet been given, it is a standard of the Lord's law, which is found in Leviticus chapter 15, verse 18. This is seen explicitly in the life of David in 1 Samuel 21. When David was offered the holy bread of the priests, we read this, 
And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have at least kept themselves from women. The second reason can only be inferred. That would be so that the people's minds would be on the Lord and on what lie ahead of them when he would appear to them. Rather than thinking about the carnal, they could reflect on the spiritual. There is a New Testament parallel to this, which is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul writes, Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Verse 16, Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. This verse, at least in part, is given as a parallel to the resurrection of Christ, which occurred on the morning of the third day. Both events were predicted in advance to occur on that day. And though the displays are somewhat different, they were given for the people to believe. Here's what it says. And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. There in the morning on the third day, the Bible describes the scene as an amazing display of splendor. It first mentions kolot or voices which are translated in some Bibles as thunders. It is probably accurate because in Revelation 4, which is in the Greek, which describes the scene of the throne of God in heaven, it says that from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Along with the voices or thunderings came lightnings. This is the first time that they're mentioned in the Bible. It is the noun barak, which comes from a verb, which means to flash forth. Along with these two came Anan Chaved, or a dense cloud. The scene would have been marvelous to behold. In what was probably a perfectly clear day otherwise, the majesty of the Lord would be highlighted there atop the mountain. Verse 16 continues, And the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. As another amazing display of God's majesty, it says, Vekol Shofar Chazak Meod. The voice of the trumpet was mighty, very. The word for trumpet here, though, is not the same as that used in verse 13. There it was, Yobel. Now a new word is introduced into the Bible, shofar, which is exactly what this is right here. It's a shofar. Like the Yobel, the shofar signifies a ram's horn. It is used 72 times in the Old Testament, which is the opposite of the 27 times that Yobel is used, or a total of 99 times. They are used somewhat interchangeably at times. This trumpet would be the one that would sound the herald calling the people's attention to this most significant moment in redemptive history. That same trumpet sound was blown throughout the land by the people of Israel on Yom Teruah, or the Feast of Trumpets, which is actually the day that Jesus Christ was born. The people, while celebrating their feast day and blowing these trumpets all over Israel, unknowingly hailed their true king in as he lay in a manger in Bethlehem. The heavenly shofar will be blown again at the rapture of the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And heavenly trumpets will also sound during the tribulation period, marking out awesome events which will occur during that terrible time on earth. Verse 17, and Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. From this, it's obvious that the camp was spread out in the area and not directly at the mountain's base. When the great and awesome display began, Moses personally led them out to the base of the mountain. 
and measurements of the base of Mount Sinai prove that there was enough space for even such a large congregation to gather there. Here again is a poor rendering of the Hebrew. The word Ha Elohim, or the God, is used. The Israelites were not being brought out to a God. Instead, they were being brought out to the God. Elohim is mentioned three times in this chapter, and all three times there is a definite article used with it. Throughout the chapter, Yehovah, or the Lord, is mentioned 18 times. And so the article is given to show that the God is the Lord, Yehovah. The wording is specific so that we won't miss what's being relayed. A trumpet blast is sounded, one that brings death to all. It warns that the law is about to be heard. And with thunderings and lightnings comes the deathly pall. Soon is coming that most terrifying word. There is smoke as judgment comes down in fire. Smoke like a furnace. God's wrath is on display. There at Calvary comes the heavenly pyre. And as the Savior dies, the sin is washed away. A trumpet blast is heard, one that brings life once more. The dead shall be raised, not in condemnation, but in victory. It will raise the redeemed and carry them across to the other shore, where we shall sing the praise of the Lord, there by the glassy sea. Our third thought today is the blast of the trumpet, verses 18 through 25. Verse 18, now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. The word smoke here is the word ashan. This is its first use in the Bible in the verb form. The World English Bible gives the proper sense of what occurred. Mount Sinai, all it smoked. But it's important to understand the symbolism here. Smoke in the Bible is a metaphor, and it's not for what you're thinking of some type of glory. It's a metaphor for wrath. For example, in Psalm 74, we read this. Oh God, why have you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? The smoke then is not just for a majestic display, but it is seen with the giving of the law to show that God is utterly wrathful at the sin of humanity. God's standard is revealed in this law, which we continuously violated. And as Paul says in the New Testament, for if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is made of no effect because the law brings about wrath for where there is no law, there is no transgression. But there is also another aspect of this majestic display. It says that the Lord descended upon it in fire. Fire is given for two main reasons in the Bible. The first is for judgment and for condemnation. The second is for purification. The law would bring judgment on any who violated its precepts, or it would purify those who perfectly adhered to it. Unfortunately, as Paul noted, the law brings about wrath as none can perfectly adhere to it. And if you don't believe that, you wait till next week and the week after that when we go through the Ten Commandments. And if you think you're sinless, wait until you're done listening to those two sermons and then decide again. However, in Christ who fulfilled the law, there is purification. All of this is being seen in this marvelous display recorded for us to participate in and to understand and to ensure that we do understand that this is exactly what's being seen. We continue. Verse 18 going on, its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly. The word kibshan or furnace is used just four times in the Bible. Once at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, twice in Exodus 9 during the plague of boils and now here. Each of these points to wrath and judgment. 
And one more time in Revelation 9, which is in the Greek, the same terminology will be used at the blowing of the fifth trumpet judgment. The picture we are seeing here at Sinai reflects the wrath of God at the sins of man. And yet, it also shows us a picture of the grace to come. The Lord descends upon Sinai, the bush of the Lord, a thorny bush, in fire and smoke which ascends like that of a great furnace. It is a picture of the cross of Jesus Christ, adorned and capped with a crown of thorns. Once and for all time, he judged the sins of man through fulfillment of the very law that he gave to us to show us our desperate need for him. Every single word of this points to Christ, every bit of it. How people have missed this symbolism is simply beyond me. Not a single commentary that I read equated what occurs here with the work of the Lord on Calvary. And yet, it is as plain and obvious as it can be when looking at the particular words which are used. Verse 19, And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. The word for sounded long here is not the same as in verse 13. This word means to go. Therefore, this is a series of blasts which increase in sound, probably to a frightening degree. Though it doesn't say what Moses spoke to God, it is probably the words of Hebrews 12, 21, where it's recorded, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. However, to reassure him, it says that Ha Elohim, or the God, answered him by voice. If there was fear in the man, then there was tenderness from the Lord to calm him. The Lord displayed his awesome majesty to the people below, while at the same time he revealed his benevolent grace to his servant through tender speech. Verse 20, Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain. If this occurred at the traditional location held to as Mount Sinai, then the Lord would have come down not on the highest point of the mountain, but at the highest part visible from Ur-Raha. This would be the peak known as Ras Suf Safay. Verse 20 continues, And the Lord called to Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. In order to demonstrate that Moses alone was qualified to mediate for the people, the Lord calls him up to the top of the mountain. It'll be a quick climb for a very specific purpose, and then a quick descent, which will follow. Verse 21, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. No sooner had Moses come to the Lord than he was immediately given instructions to go back down and warn the people. What is happening here concerns personal feelings of self-worth. Instead of speaking to Moses from the mountaintop as he did in the previous verse so that the people could hear, he called him up to show that they were not set apart in the way that they thought they were. His first words are that the people shouldn't break through and gaze at the Lord. First, to attempt to gaze at the Lord would inevitably result in leaving an impression in their minds of which they could then form an image. This, in turn, would lead to idolatry. Secondly, it's apparent that even though they were already told not to break through, they had the inclination that because Moses could, then so could they. This same attitude will be seen after the giving of the law as well. Number 16 says this, They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? But they were mistaken. There was a penalty for gazing upon the perfection of the Lord, which is that many of them would perish. 
This was warned to the priests in Numbers 4, verse 20, and a magnificent example of it was seen in 1 Samuel 6, verse 19. This idea of the people thinking more highly of themselves than they ought is confirmed by the next verse, verse 22. Also let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. Although the Levites have not yet been established as priests, this does not mean that the people didn't have priests who ministered to God for them. In Exodus 24, verse 5, which is before the assignment of the priests under the law, certain men offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Therefore, this verse is telling us that these priests thought that they were already consecrated because of their duties, and so they didn't bother purifying themselves as they were instructed. The Lord is telling them that, in fact, they had thought too highly of themselves, and they were about to get rubbed out. Verse 23, But Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. Moses, not fully comprehending either the gravity of the situation, nor yet the full holiness of the Lord, attempts to placate him by telling him that the people have already been instructed. It's as if he thinks that the Lord is unaware of the circumstances around him. The Lord is thinking on terms of national transgression, the entire congregation breaking through, but Moses cannot comprehend this. The you that he uses is emphatic. You warned us. He cannot believe that one would transgress because the penalty was death. And so he certainly couldn't comprehend that the whole nation would transgress. He then mentions that bounds have been set around the mountain to consecrate it. Nothing's been said about the mountain being consecrated to this point, although it is inferred in having separated the people from it. So far, only the consecration of the people has been noted. But this explains what's going on. The people were consecrated. The priests thought that they were already consecrated, and the mountain is consecrated. If Moses can climb up it, then surely they could too. It is presumptuous thinking on the part of the entire nation, and it is a pattern which will be seen all the way throughout their history, even into New Testament times, and which is even seen in them in a great measure today. If you know any Jewish people, you can testify to this. Moses simply doesn't understand but the Lord does, and his next words are words of urgency. Verse 24, Then the Lord said to him, Away, get down, and then come up, you and Aaron, with you. There's a rebuke in these words. Moses thought that he could change the unchanging mind of the Lord. Unlike us, he does not change like shifting shadows. He understands the nature of man better than any man, and so he simply says, Lek, red, away, get down. And then he follows up with basic instructions which are actually intended for the entire congregation to understand. Come back, just you and Aaron. The people were ready to come up and they will learn that this is not in the cards. Only Moses and Aaron will ascend the mountain to meet with the Lord. Verse 24 going on, But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. For the second time, Moses is told that the Lord will break out against the people if they violate the preset standards. Neither priest nor common person would be allowed to come up. What is rather unfortunate in this translation is that verses 21 and 24 use the word for the people breaking through. It is haras, which gives the idea of breaking down or tearing down something. But in verses 22 and 24, the word for the Lord breaking through is parats, 
which gives the idea of breaking through something, maybe like a ram. It is a completely different word, and yet translations use the word break for translating both. The idea is that if the people break down that which has been established, the Lord will break through them in judgment. Again, it is a picture of the giving of the law itself. When we break down the precepts of the law, God will break out against us for violating the law. Without understanding what the words are saying, the picture that is being made is completely lost. Adam Clark poetically describes the need for Moses to communicate to the people. He says this, God knew that they were heedless, criminally curious, and stupidly obstinate, and therefore his mercy saw it right to give them line upon line that they might not transgress to their own destruction. Verse 25 finishes up our verses today. So Moses went down to the people and spoke to them. These concluding words of chapter 19 come directly before the giving of the Ten Commandments. The people had been, as it were, rebuked. They assumed that they could come forward and fellowship with this terrifying and holy God because they had been consecrated. Moses told them otherwise. They were merely consecrated to hear the words of condemnation which would follow. They had not been consecrated to come near to him in an intimate way. That would not come about for another 1,500 years when those same commandments were fulfilled by the Lord when he came to dwell among us in human flesh. The words they are about to hear will not make them holier. Instead, they will only show them how utterly miserable they are in the presence of true holiness. They will show them how utterly sinful sin is to God, and they will reveal the glory of the Lord alone who can meet those awesome words. Let us never think more highly of ourselves than we ought Instead, let us be infinitely grateful that God has put us on the other side of the cross, where faith in Christ leads not to condemnation, but to salvation. Matthew Henry understood this. He said the divine law is a binding as a rule of life. The Son of God came down from heaven and suffered poverty, shame, agony, and death, not only to redeem us from its curse, but to bind us more closely to keep its commands. The law which stood opposed to us is now nailed to his cross and our sins are nailed to it as well, covered by the blood which ran down and removed those frightening words of condemnation. Thank God for Jesus Christ. And I mean that sincerely. Thank God for Jesus Christ. If you have never received God's forgiveness through his shed blood, let's get that fixed today. Let's get that fixed even right now. This law that we're going to see next week and what leads up to it in the giving of this display all points not to love. It points to wrath because man has violated God's standard and God is angry at the sins of man. All men are condemned because of just one sin, the sin of Adam. And this law is given to show us God's perfect standard and how utterly sinful sin is to God. Until this time, nobody had the law. They didn't know that they were transgressing. But now with this law comes a knowledge of sin. And in that knowledge of sin comes greater condemnation. Our minds can't bear what is going to come upon us because of this law. And so we make up things and we say, oh, it doesn't matter. Or Jesus forgives everybody. And, you know, you see all these crazy theologies that are out there in the world dismissing that God demands justice for our sins. But God loves us enough to do something about it for our behalf in himself. And so he stepped out of the eternal realm 
and he united with human flesh, and he became a man, and he walked among us. That which our hands have handled, and which our eyes have seen, which our ears have heard, we testify to this, so that you may fellowship with us. This is the love of God in Jesus Christ. I will take the wrath of this law upon myself. And just think about it, because that is what the cross of Calvary signifies. God's wrath at the sins of man. And if you don't accept the wrath of God in Jesus Christ, then it will be poured out in you as an individual. And there are no other choices. It is either saying, I received Jesus Christ and what God did in him, or I will take the full brunt of the law in myself. And God help you if you try to do that. Only eternal condemnation can come from that. So please call on Jesus Christ today. If you've never, ever called out and just said, I'm a sinner and I need to be forgiven, do it today. Now is the time of God's favor. Today is the day of salvation. I have a closing verse for you today. It's rather long, but only one time in the Bible we come to this particular passage, and there's only one place where it's recorded. Again, is in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched, and that burned with fire into blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet with voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly in the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better than the blood of that of Abel. Next week is Exodus 20, verses 1 through 12. Terrifying are the Lord's demands directed to each and every one. It's entitled, Ten Not-So-Simple Commands, Part 1. That'll be our 54th Exodus sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. And he has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. I have a poem for you today based on these many verses. It's called, The Lord Came Down. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and them today and tomorrow consecrate and let them wash their clothes to be ready for the magnificent date. And let them be ready for the third day, for on the third day will come down the Lord upon Mount Sinai in sight of all the people. This is according to my word. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death on the spot. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or with an arrow shot. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. He shall die there on the spot. When the heaven... When the trumpet sounds long, tell them not to fear. To the mountain they shall come near. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people, and he they sanctified, and they washed their clothes. This was done so that God would be glorified. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. This to you I do say. Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that thunderings and lightnings were there were, and a thick cloud on the mountain and the trumpet, the sound of the trumpet was very loud for sure, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. The awesome sight had them all humbled. 
And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain, certainly trembling in the shoes with which they were shod. Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, as if there were an enormous, even heavenly pyre. And the whole mountain quaked greatly, and when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice so strong. Then the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the mountain at the top, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Heed my word, go down, and the people warn, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish, as I have sworn. Also let the priests who come near the Lord themselves consecrate, lest the Lord break out against them, for them it would be a terrible fate. But Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, to wit. For you warned us, saying, Set bounds around the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, Away! Get down and then come up, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through, to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them according to his word. So Moses went down to the people, and to them he spoke, that the words of the Lord were not just a joke. Lord, with this awesome display of who you are, it makes knowing Jesus all the more glorious. Instead of fire and smoke, judgment and wrath, you have shown grace and mercy to unworthy us. Thank you for the cross of Calvary. Thank you for the judgment, which in turn has set us free. Thank you for what he did on that marvelous tree. Thank you for your goodness. And with it, we shall praise you eternally. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, what a majestic display those people saw, not even comprehending that What you were doing was showing them your anger at their sins. And the people quaked and they trembled and they said, don't let God speak to us again, lest we all die at his voice. Lord, how awesome and how majestic you are. And it makes it all the more surprising that you would look upon us in our fallen condition. We can get into an airplane, we can go up to 30,000 feet and not even see people anymore. And if we even see them, they're just little specks on the ground. And you're out there in the vast universe overseeing constellations and galaxies and marvels that we can't even comprehend and yet you would regard us how could it be that you would send jesus to save us so small that we can't even see each other from an airplane how great you are O god to look upon us and to say i'll forgive them through the death of my own son judgment and wrath anger and condemnation i can't believe it How wonderful you are to take that away from us and to give us grace. Thank you. Thank you, O God. Amen. Today, as you think of the meaning of it, the reason why we take it, which is proclaiming his death until he comes, think about what we just saw. That that wrath that was on display at Mount Sinai because of the sins of mankind all went on to him. We proclaim his death until he comes. He did that for us, and now he's promised that he's going to come back and take us out of here because we simply asked him to forgive us and save us. Nothing we did, there's nothing we can do. You hear anybody add in a little bit of yeast into the gospel message, you need to do this, you need to do that, reject them. God says, I will take care of this problem myself, and I will do it in my son. Don't let anybody tell you there's something else that you need to do other than just simply exercise faith in what Jesus Christ has done. And then after that, we can do all of the things that we 
should be doing. You know, turning away from this sin, turning away from that sin, telling people about Jesus, studying the Word, fellowshipping with other Christians. These are all great things, but get Christ right first so that when you speak to somebody about Him, you don't muddy the waters. It's by simple faith, by grace, through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God and not of works, lest any man should boast. No boasting. Boasting is excluded. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and he would have given a blessing over it. He would have said these marvelous words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it. And he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper. And he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ.
Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Oh, Lord, thank you so much for this past week and the family times that we've had and the good food and the many blessings that you've blessed us with. We anticipate the year ahead to be a good one, but it's all in your <coughs> capable hands either way, whether uh, good times or whether trials and afflictions come. Help us, just give us enough strength. If nothing else, give us enough strength to praise your name, and I'm sure that with that, every person here will be satisfied. Just give us that one grace. And Lord, we do love you, we praise you, we pray for all of the people who are currently out, that are doing uh, other things, that are traveling. We thank you for the baby that was born to uh, Paul and Elaine's um, son, and uh, or daughter, and uh, we uh, pray that that child will grow up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. And we just thank you for all the other good blessings you've blessed us with. So many. We just couldn't even count them. Every breath is a blessing and every flower and every smile on a child's face. It's all just grace from you. Thank you for these things. We love you. We praise you. We exalt you. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.